This is The Lid Is On. I'm Connor Lennon. It's the fourth episode in our mini-series, Humanitarian Leadership Stories, produced in collaboration with the UN Humanitarian Office, OCHA. Today, Daniel Johnson from UN News finds out how the work of the UN's relief chiefs in Nigeria, South Sudan, Jordan and Lebanon are putting vulnerable people first. Welcome to this podcast, UN Humanitarian Leadership Stories in Their Own Words. Fascinating insight from frontline responders who are helping people with acute needs in some of the most challenging and dangerous places in the world. This podcast is brought to you by UN News in association with the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. For more podcasts from the UN, go to the UN News Audio Hub. I don't like differentiating about protecting humanitarian workers and then forget completely about the people we are there to serve. So to me, addressing both is equally important. I have been myself to both sides of the contact line to have these tough discussions with the interlocutors. People were caught in between in the gray zone in very dangerous situations. UN aid leader in Ukraine, Osnat Lubrani there, and before her, Edward Callan, her counterpart in Nigeria. Their stories are coming up in today's podcast. Thank you for listening. Part 1. Frontline Aid Deliveries. Lessons Learned. I'm studying as a UN volunteer. It actually took me to Afghanistan. And I will never forget that humble experience I had. You know, landing on a plane and all I could hear was go to the floor, you know, and we all have to lie on the floor because of the incoming rockets at that point in time. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. I asked myself, oh, my God, what is this? Edward Callan there, who recently served as the UN resident and humanitarian coordinator in Nigeria and who began his humanitarian career dramatically, it turns out, in Afghanistan. Nigeria is a country of 200 million people, which is sadly quite often in the news for all the wrong reasons. In 2014, the international spotlight focused on the mass kidnappings of the Chibok schoolgirls by violent extremists Boko Haram, which was linked to ongoing separatist violence in the country's northeast. As the UN's top aid official in the country, it was Edward's job to help people who've become cut off in remote places where the state doesn't always have total control. According to UN Aid Coordinating Office OCHA, the number of people in need of urgent assistance in northeast Nigeria alone is around 8.7 million. That makes the humanitarian crisis in Borno, Adamawa and Yobe states, which has spilled over into the Lake Chad region, one of the most severe aid situations in the world. Together with the host government and local partners, the UN is trying to provide life-saving assistance to 6.4 million of the most vulnerable people. Before anything can happen, though, a UN humanitarian coordinator's first task is to ensure everyone's safety. Let's hear Edward Callan's take on the life and death decisions that have to be weighed up before trying to get aid to people in desperate need. You are talking about actual conflict that's ongoing. Like in Northeast Nigeria, we're talking about a protracted um, crisis. We are in over 37,000 people have been killed over some years. So you are really dealing with quite a difficult situation. But also, it's nice to start appreciating what the local authorities have done. For example, in February 2016, there are only two of the local government areas in Bono states were accessible. 
But as we speak today, about 21 of those tests are accessible, although they are accessible with security limitations. So I think it is critical to what has been done. But then moving forward, it's, it becomes extremely important that we have to engage constructively, constructively with all stake operators when it comes to safety and security of humanitarian workers and also the beneficiaries. But also because of the rapid asymmetrical warfare that's ongoing in Northeast Nigeria, we are seeing a situation now where aid workers are becoming opportunistic targets of the non-state armed groups. I mean, we have colleagues that are still kidnapped that are not being released as we speak. I, we are seeing videos of close execution of aid workers, which are quite horrible and very horrifying scenes. Of course, we have to continue the advocacy at the highest level to ensure that the necessary protection is provided for aid workers. Part two, integrity, professionalism, diversity, and why they matter. From northeast Nigeria to South Sudan, where aid delivery operations hit the same barriers, mainly because of staggering levels of insecurity and violence linked to the country's civil war and chronic underdevelopment. To explain how strong leadership values count in difficult situations like this, I've been speaking to the UN's former humanitarian and resident coordinator in South Sudan, Alan Nuduhu. I just had a meeting earlier today where we were discussing some of the challenges we are facing vis-a-vis the security. There was a government, there was uh, donors, there was uh, uh, NGOs and UN agencies, and we we're trying to really come up with how to make sure that uh, we protect our own humanitarian actors while we're trying to really serve the people in need. The fact is that we can just simply say, well, we're just going to leave this to the government to provide protections and all that. But by listening to everybody carefully, you can start to see that people have different ideas about how best to really engage what you can do, for example, to really get a part of the government that can talk to the community that are fighting to try to get a solution at that level. And then our actions can come and complement that to make sure that we do not get anybody in harm's way when they're trying to deliver humanitarian assistance. And that principle should prevail no matter what the different solutions are. So this value of integrity and uh, making sure that you listen to people and respect people is something that you have to constantly use. It's actually become part of your second nature, the way you engage for you to be actually successful in what you do. Part three, leading by example. As the UN's humanitarian leader of an entire country team, which in a major emergency means that you have a lot of staff and a to-do list that includes the delivery of cross-border assistance in war zones, the important thing is to lead by example. You've got to fill those leadership shoes. Here's Anders Pedersen, UN resident and humanitarian coordinator in Jordan, who shares his experience in bringing together a wide range of actors to respond to people's needs. First and foremost, it's about showing leadership and being capable of bringing a team together. The second one for me is that it's fundamentally about team building. I very, very strongly believe that the role of RCAT is not to be the one shining or the one and only. It's absolutely about bringing together your team. It's about outreach. It's about trust. It's about building those relationships that enable us to actually get our work done. 
I believe very much in a kind of a crowdsourcing kind of way of doing things and very willing to adjust and adapt my own approaches when I'm listening to others and I'm hearing actually others having much more intelligent ideas than myself. At the end of the day, it's about achieving results. And in our particular case, the result is that we can reach people in most need. If we do that, people will follow. I'm quite adamant to that. And that comes to resource mobilization or it comes to our own team within the UN and beyond. If we deliver results, we will also get the kind of support that we need for it. You're listening to UN Humanitarian Leadership Stories in their own words. Fascinating first-hand insight from frontline responders tackling emergencies all over the world. Part 4. Aid Solutions During COVID Lockdown Although COVID-19 has become a part of our lives, early on in the pandemic it had the potential to cause massive disruption to the UN's relief work. Nowhere more so than in Ukraine, where millions of people in the east of the country have been affected by years of conflict. For those in the provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk, parts of which are beyond the government's control, the front line is crossed around 1.2 million times every month as families try to get essentials and visit relatives. For UN resident and humanitarian coordinator of Ukraine, Osnat Livrani, it's been a huge challenge to ensure that there's a continuous supply of aid across this contact line. No doubt it would be far easier not to have to try to reach all those on the other side, but that's not what Osnat has in mind at all. Here she is now, setting the scene and explaining what's expected of an aid leader in this type of situation. Our conflict here that we are facing is one of the oldest conflicts in the world. We've got a very aging population that is disproportionately old population that are, comprises the majority of our beneficiaries. And they are now particularly vulnerable to the pandemic. So that has also been important. We are organized according to the IAC, uh, the well-known cluster system, which has been working very well. A big focus on protection, a strong focus on the water and sanitation needs. There is now with the COVID situation, the education uh, cluster has also had to deal with new problems in terms of the even more extreme isolation of children who are, you know, we talk about distance learning, but when there is no computer, when there is no electricity, there is only so much you can do remotely. So I think the emphasis has been on continuing to be able to reach out to people, but then in terms of our own staff and also the beneficiaries to really deploy in a way that is safe. So a lot of focus has been put on safety and protection from infection and building that into our response, both in terms of ensuring that we as humanitarians don't lose that connection and don't seem as if we are disconnected and close ourselves safely in our offices. So that has not happened. Regrettably, a lot of my efforts have been on calling out the fact that the COVID pandemic has been politicized. While there is justification for putting restrictions on freedom of movement, the considerations have not always been from the epidemiological perspective. And rather than finding solutions to enable, you know, particularly those humanitarian cases to be able to be facilitated, often that has not been the case. I have been myself to both sides of the contact line to have these tough discussions with the interlocutors, particularly around the time when there were very big concerns 
concerned that there was sudden lifting of the restrictions without coordination between the two sides so that people were caught in between in the gray zone in very dangerous situations. And that called on having those tough discussions. I think to some extent I have succeeded because they were sort of admitting that it was non-coordination wasn't a very good idea. So now it's, it's a bit more coordinated, but I'm still very worried that, um, you know, the people who need our support most are not able to get to it. With so many people wanting to cross this contact line and with only a handful of checkpoints where it's actually possible, it was immediately clear to Osnap that she needed to ensure their safe passage with government and non-state actors. Here she is now explaining how to take the initiative. Developing personal relationships is very important. These are people that I'm not seeing for the first time. On the first meetings, it was really about building a relationship of trust, putting some parameters on it, certainly. I always emphasize that uh, I'm not the address to talk about political negotiations. I'm there to talk about the people, the needs of the people, how we can get to the people, and finding those commonalities with the actors on both sides. It can be a frank, sometimes tough conversation, but at the same time, you know, with a certain respect. I just had a, in one of my discussions, because, you know, I deal with the adversaries are also different groups and they're very different, their mannerisms, their expectations, their personalities. I had a tough time. They sort of sat me down and uh, talked at me for like um, over an hour. But then afterwards, they sort of really appreciated that I had the patience to listen to them. And then they sort of came off their high horses and we had a more honest discussion. So it's really knowing how to read the human nature, the pressures that the other side is dealing with, and then you're better at getting some results, the outcomes that you want. I think that's always the main focus for me because I can sort of talk at people and say all the right things, but if it doesn't get me the right results, then I don't think that I've done justice to what my role is all about. Part 5. People should come first, not flags. So far in this podcast, we've heard the UN's top aid officials talk about the key humanitarian values that they rely on to do their job, that they use frequently to negotiate with governments and armed groups. Values like doing no harm, transparency and trust building. Over and above these essential values, though, there's one overriding requirement that trumps them all, and that's basic humanity. Let's travel to Lebanon to hear Najat Roshti's story. She's the irrepressible UN humanitarian coordinator and resident coordinator there. I always remind everybody that our raison d'etre here is to help the people. And before starting thinking of us or about us or about our organization and put our flags, you know, in whatever statement or action or activity or support we are providing, let's put the people first. It's so important that we never forget the human faces and the tears of people and the suffer and the hopelessness of people, because this is where is the heart of our mission. UN aid chief in Lebanon, Najat Roshdi there, 
with some characteristically forthright advice on how to advocate for assistance and cooperation with partners to assist people with urgent needs. For more episodes from this series and to see short video profiles and insights from other aid chiefs from Lebanon to the Philippines, just search online for OCHA and Humanitarian Leadership Stories now. Thanks for listening and goodbye.